Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Yo, technology, what is it all about? And we said maybe we can skip this whole expensive and long process of really mm. measuring the RNA and use AI, deep learning, to look at this image, really a simple image that a pathologist looks at that costs zero dollars, and understand which genes are upregulated, which genes are downregulated, and from that, directly from this image, predict the response to treatment. And this is where we see the next step in AI, without AI, or with, you know, even two years ago, I think this would have been impossible to do. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. I am your host, Danny Fortz, and the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. And this week, we're going to cover the gamut, the AI gamut, from computers that debate humans and sometimes win, sometimes lose, and cancer hunting AI and everything in between. On today's show, we have a woman who is in the center of it all. Her name is Ranit Ahoranov. She is a computational neuroscientist and chief technology officer of a company called Pangea Biomed. They're a startup using AI to target cancer treatments, especially for people who have very difficult, very aggressive cancers for which there are not a lot of obvious cures. And I want to have her on because there, you know, there's a lot of hand waving about how AI is going to change everything. Medicine at your fingertips, an AI doctor in your pocket that's better than any doctor on planet Earth, etc. It's rolled out as kind of one of these big prizes, almost the big prize of AI. And Pangea, which is based in Israel, is right in the engine room here using AI for a very specific purpose. And it appears potentially having hugely dramatic results when it comes to figuring out which medicines and treatments to give to certain cancer patients. Obviously, these are, you know, in terms of the stakes, they could not be higher. Now, it is not the AI doctor in your pocket which has become the refrain, but it's a real-world application of a technology that could have big life-changing implications for real patients. So I thought it was worth having her on to talk about it. And Ranit has just a very interesting career before this. Previously, she was at IBM where she, for almost six years. That's right, working on one thing for six years. She worked on something called Project Debater, which was an AI that could be given any topic, uh, you know, drop of a hat, and debate 
with um, some of the best human debaters in the world. It yielded some very impressive results, and this was happening back in 2018, 2019, years before ChatGPT became a thing. So she's just deeply steeped in these topics and the power of AI and just has a very good sense of the possible today and the potential tomorrow as, as you know, we are now in this AI age. So with that, I will now hand you over to my conversation with Ranit Aharonov. Enjoy. Well, I'm excited to talk to you because I along with every other tech journalist, have, have, I've been writing about and reading about all things AI since November, particularly. And there's been a lot of excitement around what this is going to mean for any number of industries. And medicine always kind of bub- bubbles to the top. I think there's a lot of hype and there's a lot of confusion about what what this will actually look like, what these AI tools can and cannot do. So I'd love to get a sense from you kind of high level before we get into the specifics of Pangea, kind of what, how you're thinking about this kind of moment in this technology innovation cycle, especially as now that we have like the world has been introduced to large language models and there's so much excitement around what this could mean, again, especially for everything from the delivery of healthcare to drug discovery to, you know, up and down the stack. Yeah, how are you thinking about this in terms of the arrival of this technology and what it might mean? So AI has really been around for a long time and the recent hype is because AI is now finally something that everyone can touch, uh, I think through ChatGPT, et cetera. So, and what we're experiencing with ChatGPT is in a way telling the story because on the one hand, it's extremely exciting. It seems like it can do everything and, and it's really amazing the kind of questions it can answer, stories it can write and so on. On the other hand, I think everybody who played uh, with ChatGPT knows that it makes stupid mistakes, yes. gets factual things wrong. And I think this is where we should be cautious. And And the same goes for applications of AI for health. So I think we're in the beginning of really seeing places where it could revolutionize the way we do healthcare and we already see uh, some of it coming. On the other hand, it's not something that would mature very soon in the sense that it will be able to, you know, be your doctor, advice on healthcare, etc. There are a lot of places where we already see AI helping a lot. Image processing, for example, mm. if you look at looking at CT scans and other images, AI is already showing that even together with a radiologist, it can really help uncover uh, areas that may be missed, etc. So it's uh, working together with radiologists, mining for data, both textual data and non-textual tabular data to find insights. So this kind of machine learning, finding signals in large amounts of data that can help direct drug developments and other things. And things more like we do, where we have specific applications that we take the ideas of AI in different directions and can now really develop things that were not possible to develop before uh, we had uh, these computational and AI tools. Before we get there, can we go a little bit backward in, into what you were doing before what you're doing now at Pangea? 
and talk about the the I think it's how does it what's it called the project debater yeah project debater so I'll even go a little bit backward than that yeah. so um, I, I started out by trying to understand the brain so I was always interested you know how does our brain work and and what does it mean to really learn something and feel something etc um, so that was my PhD and it really had to do a lot with the understanding neural networks so this was way back was it neuroscience or was it kind of computer science with a specialization in neural networks or it was both so it was neuroscience right. from the really neural network aspect of it at that time I it see. was not deep learning yet but this is where I got the foundations for the theory of, of neural networks and then after my PhD I really felt like I want to do something that would have a direct effect on the world and on mm. people and I had to 10 years in the healthcare domain. So I did do uh, work on diagnostics and other things. And then I went to do natural language processing and, and I managed the team of Project Debater, which is my second love. I really like language. I've always been intrigued by language. Hebrew is a very interesting language. Hmm. So this is how I got to Project Debater. And this is at IBM, correct? This was at IBM Research. And IBM Research has a very nice... Uh, history of what are called grand challenges. So can you really yeah. set a, a grand goal and by getting there, do things that are revolutionary? So Deep Blue that uh, beat Kasparov in chess, and then there was um, uh, Watson in uh, uh, Jeopardy. And then my colleague in Israel, uh, Noam Sloanim, he suggested building a computer that can actually hold a debate. So this was a talking computer that could get a topic that it never... trained on or learned or mm. was exposed to and hold a debate so an opening speech listen to the opponent's speech make a rebuttal mm. speech a summary speech and for more than six years we developed this project debater this computer six years yeah it's actually started before that but six years was really the final run and and during that time we shifted some of our components to do deep learning so we were ahead of that wave and five years ago just before covid hit we had a live debate on stage in San Francisco with the Kasparov of the debate world uh, so Harish Natarajan and it was a very interesting and, and exciting time and how did it go It went extremely well. I, I invite everyone to uh, go to YouTube. You can watch the entire debate or there's a three and a half minute sort of short version because the whole thing is about 30 minutes and it's extremely interesting. And one of the things I think you could see is that actually the computer was very good at bringing information and data, which is not that surprising. And people hmm. in the audience said that they learned more on the topic from Project Debater. But more people shifted their opinion towards the human <laughs> debater. So the human, quote unquote, won? Well, th this is one of the things that made this a very difficult thing to develop. Because one of the things that happens when you develop AI and, and you know, think of the game of Go or chess, you can actually have two versions of your AI that play each other. And you can be having coffee or sleeping at the time. And you see which one is better because it's easy to see who won. It's clear. With a debate, it's not clear. If you don't have an audience, there's no clear way to measure how well you do. And we chose one measure, which was actually problematic for us because we, the topic that was chosen, 80% of the audience was already on the side of Project Debater. And, and the way we measured it is 
who was able to pull more people to their side. But if you start with 80% on your side, then obviously it's right. very difficult. So we were not really interested. I think we were actually a little bit afraid of, of winning because you know people are afraid <laughs> of AI, maybe today less, I, I'm not sure. Yes. But it was, you know, we, we didn't want to pass the Turing test or anything of that sort. We, we even, you know, made the computer voice computer. We didn't want to, you know, people to think that we're trying to develop a machine that would be human-like and convince them of, of you know, things, etc. So the winning was less of the issue, yeah. And what was the subject of that debate? Well, it was, we should subsidize preschools and Project Debater was for subsidizing preschools. And this was California, so we kind of, <laughs> clearly 80% <laughs> were for subsidizing preschools. Yes, yes. <laughs> Subsidize something, please, out here. So you spent six years on that, and you said you shifted parts of it to neural networks. And I think, I don't know if you could kind of touch on that a little bit, because I think it's this is another one of those kind of terms of art that people all of a sudden are hearing a lot, but don't really know what it means in the broader context of AI and why it is such a big deal and why it is such a big unlock in terms of where we are, where we have got to in 2023. I'll try, and, and you tell me if I succeeded. <laughs> <laughs> so a neural network is really a learning machine, a learning yeah. algorithm, right? So it is shown a lot of examples of input and let's mm -hmm. say correct or desired output. I think one thing that is easy to understand is you show it many, many, many pictures. So the input yeah. would be say pixels. And you tell there's a cat here in this area, and there's a dog here, and maybe mm -hmm. even give it a sentence like a dog holding a ball. And what's in this machine that learns is really a lot of very simple pieces. Maybe before I say that, I should say eventually after training, and I'll explain how we do that training, eventually it can get new input, new pictures that it never saw, and by whatever thing is in this black box that you are have trained over a lot of samples that do have a correct answer, you are now expecting this to be able to get a new input that it never saw before. This is the idea of generalizing from training yeah. like we do, you know, humans do that all the time. We see several different tables and then we see a new table we never saw before and we it's easy for us to say this is a table or we see a new topic of a debate and we're able to hold a debate. By learning, we are able to do that. Now, what is inside that black box that enables it to do it? And the metaphor is our brain. This is why it's called neural network from the word mm -hmm. neurons. We understood early on that our brain has very simple units that are called neurons. They're not that simple, but relatively they're simple. And it, as a first approximation, they are units that can either be on or off. And they decide so to speak, to be on or off by being connected to many other such units by different weights. So in a very simplified way, they somehow weigh the different things that other neurons tell them, and then they decide, are they going to be on or off? And when you go up to billions of these connections and neurons, and you have a learning algorithm that understands how to change these weights based on these examples that you see, you can train this huge machine of neurons to then predict the right thing. And what happened in the last years is that people started to develop very interesting ways 
to build the architecture of how these neurons are connected and how exactly to represent the input and how to do this training in a very efficient way so you could have large, huge amounts of data, millions and millions of pieces of data that you show the network and it can actually train, adapt, and so on. And that is different from the approach in AI that has kind of dominated over the previous, say, 20 years. Yeah. So neural networks have been around for a long time. Um, in the 90s, when I did my PhD, people thought neural networks are going to do what they do today. But then most yeah. people gave up. And part of the reason or the the reason was that the computers were just not strong enough to do this learning on large amounts of data. So then there was kind of this winter of neural networks. And then it came back you know, several years ago. And in between what people did in AI is algorithms that are more directed that we can really understand. They're not built from huge amounts of simple units, but they're really, you can think of it as mathematical equations. Like, you know, like regression is a simple example. You show many, many things, and then you predict by understanding what's the relation between the input and the output by some mathematical function. But when we go to neural networks, there is some kind of function underlying it, but it's really not something we can ever describe with a set yeah. of equations. Kind of like the brain. Exactly. So this all connects to my wanting to understand the brain, but I don't think I understand the brain yet. So <laughs> <laughs> So you did that project debater project, and perhaps it is my ignorance, but it, it wasn't exactly an AlphaGo moment or something like that, perhaps because the, the human quote unquote won. But when you did that, what was the reaction in the field? And now after six years, having done that and having this big public show that were you kind of like, all right, now what? For us, it was an AlphaGo moment. And I think also for IBM, that's got a lot of attention. Mm. We were even on the New York Times on the printed edition, um, etc. So there was a lot of hype around it. Mm. And, and, you know, IBM has as customers, it's a B2B. We don't know it like we know ChatGPT as people, but it did open up a lot of opportunities and a lot of the things that were developed while we did Project Debater. IBM is not going to sell a computer that debates. Nobody's interested in that. But a lot of the components <laughs> went into yeah. other things. But for me, yes, it was a moment of what next. Also because I think, you know, there was a lot of this feeling of a startup when we did Project Debater. It was, you know, several dozen people mostly in Israel, but um, in other places in the world as well. And we were working towards this goal. And then I asked myself again, what next? And, and really, Tuvik Becker, who was a very good friend of mine, and he is the CEO of Pangea, he told me about Pangea. So this was a serendipity uh, moment because, mm. and then I felt this thing inside again that says, you know, if we can do something that's really directly affecting people and, and health is somehow, you know, just like after PhD, I said, um, this sounds really incredible. And and one of these, uh, I think the story that, that he told me about, and now we have other uh, such stories, is about this woman who was really on, they basically told her that, that it's the end, you know, she should prepare to die. And her physician was on Pangea's scientific advisory board. And he said, you know, you know, what, what can we lose? Let, let's try your mm. analysis. It was very early days of Pangea. The analysis was still very, you know, since then we adapted some things, etc. And what the Pangea analysis said is that she is likely to respond to immunotherapy. So these are uh, specific cancer treatments that, that um, help the 
or I should say a different way, stop the cancer from fooling the immune system and therefore allow the immune system to attack the cancer, even though the standard markers that are used today to decide whether she should get these treatments were negative. But because she right. tried everything and uh, because he said, you know, there's nothing to lose, she started on that medication. And in fact, that was two and a half years ago. She's still alive and basically free of the disease. She needs to continue to take the treatment. She, yeah. she tried to yeah, stop yeah. once, but yeah. So that story really um, moved me on a personal level. And, mm -hmm. and that was the, the time I shifted back from NLP to healthcare. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And so what is the big idea at Pangea? What is the system and what is it doing? So maybe before I say, I tell you what is the system, I think we need mm. to, to really understand on a more general level what the problem is. Because yeah. really, if you think about it today, the amount of money that goes into healthcare in general and oncology in particular is astounding. It's billions of dollars to get one drug mm. on the market is you know, more than a billion dollars, sometimes $3 billion. But if you look at cancer patients, and I think we all know people who have cancer, still the success, it's getting better. And, you know, things that were death sentence maybe 10, 15 years ago today are not. But it's still, if you look at the numbers, it kind of depends how you measure it. Eventually, around 10%, 15% of cancer patients really benefit from amazing drugs that have been developed in the last 10 or 15 years. So there's a whole class of drugs that are called precision drugs or hmm. um, treatments that are targeted. So, you know, unlike chemotherapy that we all know, people started to understand that if you look at the DNA of the cancer, which is different than our DNA because there are a lot of mutations accumulating, mm. you can find what are called actionable mutations. And these are mutations that cause something that helps the cancer thrive. And if you develop right. a drug that would attack that, these are called targeted drugs, you can actually have clear benefit with less side effects. And there are really good drugs out there, a lot of them. And still, as I said, not that many cancer patients benefit from that. And we believe that a lot, or one of the main reasons is that our ability to predict who will respond to what treatment is very limited. So you take two patients that are very similar, they have the same type of cancer, generally the same background. You look for these actionable mutations. So, you mm. know, do they have this? And both of them have a mutation that supposedly there's a drug for. One of them yeah. responds very nicely and the other does not. Yeah. 
And then you say, okay, so what's going on? What happens there? And the problem is that today, people really search only for these actionable mutations. So it's like looking under the lantern for something that we know how to look for. But cancer is very smart, okay? It has mm. an abundance of regulatory mechanism which control its own growth and its environment and helps support, you know, this unchecked growth. And this is very variable between cancers. And this is not captured by the way that today treatments are matched to patients. And this is where Pangea comes in. We have a platform called Enlight, which mm. does response prediction to treatment, but instead of looking at the level of mutation, single mutations in the DNA, we're looking at the entire context of the gene expression in the tumor. So what genes are up, what genes are down, and how would that affect the effectiveness of the treatment? Is, is this environment such that there would be uh, evasion and the tumor will be mm -hmm. able to resist the treatment, or actually would the fact that you target some protein, there are other genes, proteins in the tumor that together would really kill or at least hurt the tumor. I see. This is basically what Enlight does, and it does that by looking at large amounts of data about cancer and understanding interesting, uh, let's call them functional interactions between genes. So this is, in a nutshell, what Pangea is about. So is there an analogy here of like, you know, rather than looking at a patch of rainforest, you're zooming out, looking at a whole ecosystem? Yes, that, that's a very good analogy. And so where is Pangea in terms of like, is this approved in all over the world, in America, in Europe, in the UK? In other words, like, do you have to go through a whole process where you have to get basically approved, approve this as a medical diagnostic device before you can do that? Like, where are you in that ability to kind of deploy this out there in the world? So we have, I'd say, two um, paths forward. One is that mm -hmm. we work with pharma and biotech companies because a lot of drugs fail in clinical trials, which is why, yeah, yeah. one reason yeah. why it's so expensive to develop a drug. And coming back to what I said before about knowing who will respond to treatment, if we can help them early on in the development have a biomarker to select the mm -hmm. right patients, this would expedite and bring better drugs to market faster. So this is one effort, and this obviously does not require FDA or other regulatory approvals. The other is yeah. the, the, the com what's called the community offering for patients and clinicians. Today, we do this pro bono for patients while we work with regulatory approvals. The whole area of, of diagnostics, uh, as you may know, is not necessarily has to go through FDA approval, So, uh, but it's a, a complicated issue. You can actually bring diagnostics to market without FDA. We are working very, very closely with the NCI, the National Cancer Institute, and we are starting a very large clinical trial that is fully funded by the NCI, and they're actually going to test the utility of Enlight on real patients. So patients that will be, as you have in clinical trials, different arms, there would be an arm where it uses the standard actionable mutation way, and if there is no actionable mutation, they would actually use Enlight to direct the treatment. So this would be the first large clinical trial we have already published validation on thousands of samples in a retrospective manner. So you can take samples of patients that already got treatment 
And we show that we really, if we look at these patients and we predict whether they will respond or not, we can actually take populations of patients that would not respond or would have a very low rate of response and, and increase that by separating them into groups of those that should respond and those that should not respond. And we could really increase the rate of response within patients if we direct the treatment choice. So we have a lot of validation and we're working on this clinical path forward. Gotcha. And have you guys raised venture capital? If so, like how much? And do you, are you going to need a lot more and all that stuff? We have raised uh, to date 13 million and we hope to double that figure in our upcoming Series A. So when was the company founded? How old is the company? Six years, I think, officially. Oh, wow. And in terms of like the AI piece, how is AI allowing you to do this? Is it simply by being able to process huge oceans of data per patient or per drug or whatever to kind of get better at that kind of ecosystem level analysis? Or, or is there a generative piece to, to this? Like, how does it work? So one aspect is indeed an analyzing large amounts of data, but I want to take you to the really exciting AI stuff that we're doing now, because everything I mm. told you about in light and this patient who was an exceptional responder, et cetera, and what we offer pro bono requires that you really take a piece of the tumor and you do what is called RNA expression. You really measure which genes are upregulated, which genes are downregulated in order to understand what's going on in the tumor and, and give the prediction. So this requires a tumor biopsy. Yes, I'll get to that. This is interesting. But even if you have a tumor biopsy, it still requires something that is costly and takes mm -hmm. about two to three weeks, which is to send it to a laboratory, extract the RNA, do the measurement. It could cost about, you know, one, $2,000. And what we have done in the last year is say, okay, there's a lot of understanding of image processing. And, and I don't know if you and, and, and the listeners are aware of that, but every cancer patient has from the tumor something that has been on for more than 100 years, which is you basically take a, a very thin slice of the tumor, you put it on a piece of glass, and mm -hmm. the pathologist looks in the microscope. You do some kind of coloring. Maybe you've seen it. It looks like a little blue or purplish. And mm -hmm. then they look at the morphology, and they say, you know, first of all, they say if it's a tumor or not. You know, a lot of biopsies end up not being a tumor, but then what yeah. type of tumor, et cetera. And we said, maybe we can skip this whole expensive and long process of really mm -hmm. measuring the RNA and use AI, deep learning, to look at this image, really a simple image that a pathologist looks at that costs zero dollars, and understand which genes are upregulated, which genes are downregulated, and from that, directly from this image, predict the response to treatment. And we started validating that, and we have very exciting results. There are now out in open uh, source, and we are uh, now in the process of getting this published in hopefully a high-profile journal. And this is where we see the next step in AI, without AI, or with, you know, even two years ago, I think this would have been impossible to do. And you asked an important question, and I want to not forget to make that point, because you said correctly that it needs a biopsy. And one of the issues with cancer is that it's very dynamic. And it doesn't mm -hmm. matter what algorithm you have in hand and what people do. And, and this is what's done today. If you take the cancer and you look at it, and then a year later, you want to change the treatment, what the tumor from a year ago is basically almost irrelevant. 
the cancer has evolved. And what we are starting to work on now, and this is a longer term vision, is to do all this analysis from a blood draw, what are called today liquid biopsies. So today this yeah. area of liquid biopsies is starting to emerge, but more really on the diagnostic side, looking at whether you know the cancer recurred, et cetera. But we have the vision that this would really be something that you do routinely. You take a blood draw, you do our analysis from the blood draw, you see whether the patient is responding to the treatment. And if not, you say, okay, given the current situation of the tumor, what would be the next treatment? And hopefully, and this is our vision, this could become a monitoring and something that you manage and live with because you keep adapting the treatment like, you know, with locks and robbers, you keep adapting right. it to what's going on with the tumor. So that's that's the next 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 phase. Got you. Got you. And so is there that idea of being able to just take that look at the biopsy? What I don't quite understand is how it can just um, ascertain just from looking at it without, like, as you say, those dyes to analyze morphology, et cetera. Is it just there's enough data in there that we can't see with our naked eye or even through a microscope, but that an AI can to extract the, the information it needs? It's amazing. I have to say this amazing and it's even surprising that it works. But if you think about it, the pathologists get a lot of information from the image, right? So there mm. is a lot of information there. And I completely agree with the way you stated the naked eye or our, our brain cannot really extract all the information that is in there. So there are a lot of relations, if you want, between the different pixels and the different there is a dye, but it's a very simple dye. It doesn't, yeah, it's yeah. not one of these very specific dyes. So there is a lot of information there that you can actually extract. And this area that's called digital pathology is a very hot topic, not just in, in Pangea, but it's very early still. And, and what a mm. lot of companies do is more diagnostics, really. So you can say, yeah. what's the percentage of tumor cells automatically? What's the infiltration of the immune system and so on? And we are really aiming higher in the sense that we want to be able to take that image and say, here's a, a list of treatments that are nominated as potential treatments that would be effective for the patient. And just stepping back, I mean, given where the technology is and where it's going and how fast it's developing, how are you thinking of this moment and what this could mean for patients? And the reason I ask is I was talking to somebody earlier today about this idea, you know, that one of the kind of killer apps that all the AI folks out here are talking about is like, oh, pretty soon you're going to have an AI doctor and it's going to be trained on all the medical knowledge in the world and be fed all these like real life cases and all this stuff. Basically, it's going to be the best doctor in the history of humanity and it can answer any question and just figure out what's wrong with you and help you figure out your treatment, et cetera, et cetera. And I was talking to somebody, a doctor in this kind of regulatory end of this stuff. And he's just like, that idea is never going to happen. And the reason he said is because we can't, there's no way to validate these models as a kind of diagnostics because they're kind of like a black box. They're kind of like, and, you know, oftentimes if they're generative, they, they come up with different answers every time, which is also not okay when you're talking about medicine. Um, so I'm just wondering like what, how you think about the promise here versus the very real kind of roadblocks, many of them there for very good reason to actually implementing some of the stuff in the real world. 
I think the roadblocks are real, but I wouldn't say this would never happen. And I think one of the interesting things about AI is that we as people, it's unacceptable to us that machines make stupid mistakes, right? So if you have an yes. autonomous car and it just sees a person and you know instead of hitting the brake, it accelerates, we say, oh God, autonomous cars are really dangerous. But if you look at the statistics, people also make a lot of mistakes when driving and yeah. kill other people, probably mm -hmm. more than autonomous cars. And the same goes for doctors. You know, unfortunately, doctors, and there's a real problem with how much time they can invest in a person. So if a doctor yeah. really, you had a doctor with you for 24 hours a day, you know, probably you'd get better treatment, but there are real world problems and, and we have to face that. So even human yeah. doctors make mistakes and it's really a matter of shifting the way that we think about what mistakes are acceptable and what is not acceptable and how do you put, um, where do you do the triage and you say, okay, this is something that AI can solve. This is something that we need a doctor. Maybe it could be, you know, if we think about cancer, it could be part of a tumor board where it's one of the doctors that is giving advice and making decisions. So I wouldn't rule out a full blown application. I don't think it's that close. And as I mm -hmm. said at the beginning, you know, we see ChatGPT, for example, making really dangerous mistakes because it sometimes, yeah. you know, it gives yeah, you yeah. a reference, it gives you a fact, it's completely wrong, <laughs> but it doesn't even say, you know, I'm not sure, I don't know. So yeah, this yeah, has just, to be solved yeah. before we can yeah. think about an application. But all I'm saying is we have to be humble and remember that we are also machines, our brains, and we also make mistakes. And the other point I think is we need to, at least in medicine, change the way that we perform clinical trials today because we are still very old school. You have a medicine, right? And you test that drug. But the whole idea is that if you really go towards personalized medicine, which is the holy grail that we're thinking about, right? Every person is different. Every specific individual is different. You can't really think of a clinical trial where everybody gets the same drug. You have to do a clinical trial where everybody gets an AI doctor and is treated by this AI doctor or by, in our case, Enlight, and you ask eventually, is this AI doctor bringing better results instead of saying, is this drug or that drug bringing better results? So it's really a shift of the way we think about the management and personalized medicine also from a regulatory perspective, and this will take some time. Well, it's potentially exciting because it does feel like, um, as you say, we talk about liquid biopsies, um, I know there's a few companies out here like Grail and others who who have been working in this universe. I mean, that's it just feels like there's all these tantalizing things that are just not quite in reach. And having done this job a long time, a lot of them have just forever remain out of reach. And so I'm hoping it doesn't uh, turn out this way again with this kind of new wave of AI, AI enabled tools. I'm optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm not that optimistic to say this is something that will happen in the very near future. But, you know, going back to this personalized medicine idea, even the FDA, which is a rather, you know, old fashioned institution, is now starting to approve drugs that are not for a specific cancer type, but are at least by a molecular testing. So they're shifting a little bit towards this direction mm -hmm. of individualization. And I believe, you know, it's something we all as a community have to help it happen um, and it will take time and we have to do it cautiously, of course, and, and you know, think about all the implications, but I don't see a real reason why we will not shift in that direction. 
before I let you go, did you did you ever debate debate project debater, and did you ever feel like it convinced you of something that you didn't think it was gonna, you know, that 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 it surprised you in that way? I didn't have the courage to debate it. I admit because we always <laughs> you did never it with debated it, it in six no, we years. Had, no, we had an audience every time, and I am not I'm not a good debater, so I I only watch <laughs> debates, and I was surprised uh, quite often by by things that that it says and it brought about. Yeah. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Ranit. I want to thank you guys for taking the time to listen, to spread the word for the readings and the reviews. I will not be writing about this in the paper this weekend, but I will be talking about shock, shock, Elon Musk, probably. So do check that out. Go to thetimes.co.uk or to pick up a paper or find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson or email me danny.fortson at sunday-times. Dot co dot uk. That is it for me this week. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you very soon. Bye bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.